North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. President Trump has canceled the planned summit. We're going to see what happens. We're talking to them now. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. President Trump made it clear that this time, in this administration, it would be different. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. CSIS's Victor Cha, Mike Green, and Sumi Terry. In this first episode of The Impossible State, I spoke with Victor Cha. Victor was responsible for North Korea on the National Security Council staff of President George W. Bush. And he was one of the last United States officials to have negotiated directly with the North Koreans. He brings a rare perspective on North Korea's past and its present. Victor, we had to urgently call you on the phone because President Trump has canceled this much-anticipated meeting, the summit with Kim Jong-un. So, so what's going on here? I think it does show that President Trump saw too much uncertainty uh, in the Singapore summit being so close. Uh, and even for someone who likes to operate on his gut, gut instincts and, and self-evaluately without much preparation, I think even for him there was too much uncertainty, uh, therefore the cancellation. Um, but the glass, you know, the glass half full is that there is, you know, there is a dialogue channel that has been established. I mean, he referenced it in, in President Trump did in his letter. Pompeo talked about it in his testimony. And so that may still be a channel through which they can do pre-negotiations for an eventual summit in the future, which, by the way, would be the normal way of doing these sorts of things. Yeah, no, what, what is the normal way of doing these things? So the normal ways you do, you have a long, uh, sometimes even eight month long pre-negotiation to prepare the deliverables for a summit when the two leaders meet, and you use the meeting of the two leaders as both the endpoint and the action-forcing event that pushes the negotiations along for eight months. So if that's what we fall back into as a result of this cancellation, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The primary danger is if the North Koreans start testing more missiles, more long-range missiles, and they start choosing to test them at range rather than on a lofted trajectory. What that means is instead of testing them straight up into the air to see how far they can go and measuring you know, the height of the uh, trajectory, they actually test them in the direction out into the Western Pacific, in the direction of U.S. territories like Guam or even Hawaii. That would be a very dangerous situation because I think the United States military is not going to stand for that, and, um, and there would be some sort of response. So, um, so if, if we head down that direction, then clearly the cancellation of this summit does not make us more secure. Um, in the short term, it'll make things more dangerous. All right. So let's talk about the letter that President Trump wrote directly to Kim Jong-un announcing that he was going to cancel the meeting. Usually, I mean, I used to do this. You, these things are usually crafted by the NSC staff and then polished by the National Security Advisor. Then the president may make a few small changes. But this looks like it came directly from his mouth. Um, the, the 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 way it was written, the personal way in, in in which it was written, quite it was quite interesting, you know. And so, Trump likes to do things personally, and 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 uh, if if uh, if he wants to make these sorts of personal contacts with the North Korean leader and think that's thinks that's going to be effective in terms of pushing diplomacy forward, 
um, you know, that's his style of that's his style of doing business. So you think this was Trump sitting in the Oval Office, uh, calls in an aide and says, uh, take a letter and dictates it out old school style. And that's it. Yeah, I think I mean, it certainly looks like it to me. I mean, <laughs> I, when I read the letter, I just I could I thought this this doesn't look like a regular presidential letter. Um, and uh, and so in that sense, it was quite it was quite uh, it was quite personal, actually. So then why did the preparations for this summit not work out? At least what we gathered from Pompeo's testimony is that uh, the U.S. team, logistics team preparing for this summit, was sending messages to the North Koreans and were not receiving any responses. And that was one of the reasons why they chose to cancel. And that's a perfectly good reason. Having said that and having negotiated with the North Koreans, you should never expect that they're going to respond right away. I mean, that's just not the way they do business. Um, when I had to go to North Korea for official business, when I worked uh, at the White House, you know, we had very little information about what our itinerary would be or anything once we landed in the country. We found out once we got to the country. Um, so in that sense, while I do understand why they felt it was appropriate to cancel at that point, uh, on the other hand, that's not the way the North Koreans do business. And this could be another way of the Trump administration saying, you know, we're not going to do business the way the North Koreans do it. You know, we're and therefore we're going to step away from this meeting for now. Well, and, and this is really different. When you were working in the White House, you were working directly for George W. Bush on his National Security Council. Uh, and President Bush didn't meet with the North Korean leader directly. That was his strategy, right? He didn't think it was appropriate doing um doing a meeting with the North Korean leader. Um, <clears throat> but, I mean, we still managed to get a three-, four-year-long negotiating process uh, that was able to cap and demolish some, dismantle some of their programs. So, um, you know, there is something to be said for having the professionals negotiate and holding out the prospect of a summit for later on. And when you were negotiating with the Koreans and you were one of the lead negotiators, you were the deputy head of the six-party talks for President Bush, what was it like negotiating with the North Koreans? It was pretty unusual, wasn't it? I mean, it it, it was in the sense that um, they were, uh, you know, they, they were sometimes unpredictable. They they might show up late for meetings. They might not show up for meetings. Um, uh, they had a pretty dogmatic viewpoint uh, with very little, very little room for compromise. And, the, but, and, and like, it, unlike this one, th this is bilateral. This is the U.S. and North Korea. The six-party talks was something different. What, what, what were the six-party talks? Who was in the six-party so talks? So the six-party talks were um, the two Koreas, the United States and China, uh, Japan and Russia. Uh, and they were created by uh, President Bush because he wanted – this not to just be a U.S.-North Korea negotiation because North Korea's nuclear weapons were a threat to all the countries in the region, not just the United States. And then they were hosted by China. It's interesting. I mean, and it's interesting how, you know, there was some structure to this, to your negotiation, but this negotiation seems like day-to-day, hour-to-hour. So, so what's going on here? We have to remember that the way this issue came to the Trump administration was in 2017, they had they were they were the the uh, recipient of 20 ballistic missile tests and one hydrogen bomb test with no negotiation at all, no diplomacy, no negotiation at all. And then out of nowhere, you know, President Trump decides I'm just going to meet with them. I'm just going to meet with the North Korean leader. So right then and there, you have two data points that show a high degree of unconventionality. 
whether you're talking about on the policy side or even on the escalation side, just two very unconventional starting points. And so from the very beginning, this started off as in a, on a very irregular path to the extent that we can talk about North Korea interaction as being regular, on a very irregular path. As we speak, the leadership in South Korea, President Moon, called an emergency meeting uh, at the Blue House, and he said that they were uh, attempting to figure out what Trump means. And what do you think the South Koreans are, are thinking? The South Korean president was just here. Um, my guess is that it wasn't clear to him at that time that he was going to cancel the meeting. Uh, that's why you have this emergency meeting taking place in 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 uh, in Seoul. I think the South Koreans are probably extremely concerned about the situation right now. They're probably worried that the North Koreans may start testing again because they said they were not going to test while the U.S. and DPRK were in dialogue. And if dialogue completely breaks down, you know, we might witness more uh, ballistic missile tests. So um, so in, from the very beginning, this, this whole story, when it started, was very, very irregular, very unconventional. Uh, and if this is the end of, of one phase, it is the end of this, you know, this very irregular process. But like, like we discussed earlier, if it gives way to, you know, lower level uh, dialogue channels that have been established all the way up through the Secretary Pompeo, and they continue to have negotiations on what the parameters of a summit will be and what the, what the um, deliverables, the policy... I think that would make the South Koreans and, and the Japanese and others in the region feel a little bit better because as of yesterday, we were talking about pulling our troops out. We were talking about demilitarizing the, the, the peninsula. And, and if they're going to start testing weapons again, uh, we certainly can't pull our troops out. Um, so th there's a, there's, there's, people are worried about us pulling our troops out, as President Trump said, might be part of the deal. Yeah, I mean, I think if we go if we go around the region, so you know, so South Koreans, I think, very concerned. Japanese probably happy, you know, happy that this thing is not going forward. That there might be a little bit more policy rationality built in before the United States puts its president forward. Uh, China probably is somewhat content with this outcome too, uh, as long as it goes back to a dialogue track, because I think they were quite concerned that the United States was moving too quickly and it might, might cut China out of a deal. Uh, the Russians, hard to say. I mean, I think the Russians uh, certainly support stability and dialogue on the peninsula, but given the state of U.S.-Russia relations today, they probably don't see diplomatic projects taking place around the world right now. Even um, with all the other things going on in the world, this is what, what most of our focus, if, if not all of our focus is on. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I, I mean... If we count like walking away from trade agreements and other things as diplomacy, I guess, then we're busy in other parts of the world. But in terms of actually building something, trying to build, uh, move, build, use diplomacy to move from a position of conflict to a position of negotiation, I mean, this is primarily the place where the State Department uh, and the White House have been preoccupied with their time. Well, let's talk about the stakes here. I mean, we all know about nuclear, but if we were to pull our troops out, if we, if there was to be a denuclearization process that was verifiable, doesn't this open up a whole new set of foreign policy issues for us to deal with? Yeah. I mean, if we did, if, if as people were concerned, President Trump might play fast and loose with the U.S. troop presence on Korea... Uh, that would have had all sorts of ripple effects in the region. If it had happened, I think many people are, I mean, that's probably one of the things that most people are thankful for, that 
there isn't, um, you, know, there, you know, because this summit doesn't look like it's happening just just next month, that there isn't going to be those sorts of discussions or those sorts of negotiations. Uh, but we can't rule it out because, you know, clearly the, clearly the president, at least according to the newspapers, expe- has expressed a preference for trying to see if there is a way to draw down troops in Korea um, as, as part of a negotiation. And, and that is going to be something I think that worries many allies, not just the South Koreans. Does it worry you that whether we have a deal or there's no deal, that we can't prevent the North Koreans from selling WMD, proliferating it, nuclear, ballistic, chemical biological weapons to unfriendly regimes or even non-state actors like ISIS? Unfortunately, is a very long history of them selling almost every weapon system they've ever developed uh, to outside uh, partners. Um, They tried to sell the five megawatt reactor, nuclear reactor designed to Syria, um, uh, which was probably the most blatant case uh, of trying to proliferate any part of their nuclear program as opposed to conventional weapons or even ballistic missiles. So, yes, it's a very big concern. In the current issue of Foreign Affairs that I wrote with a co-author of mine, we looked at this very carefully and tried to come up with a scheme for how you can try to prevent proliferation by North Korea uh, in, in, uh, in the future. How do you do that? So I think the, the most important thing is to really try to prevent proliferation by sea, and then uh, that would be with Japan and Korea, and then on the land by China and Russia. None of those countries have an interest in seeing North Korea proliferating materials or weapons through, uh, through the land borders to China or Russia or, through, uh, or outwards from the sea to other actors in the Middle East or other places. I suspect that's going to be an issue we keep talking about on this podcast. Yeah, I certainly think so, yes. And in the meantime, as of now, there's the, the summit's off, but... I have to ask you, what's going to happen with the commemorative coin that the White House made up uh, for for the summit? Oh, that's definitely a collector's item. <laughs> uh, it's definitely a collector's item. The coin did uh, apparently the coin mentions the year twenty eighteen, but yeah. not the date. Okay, so it may still be relevant. You just we just don't know. And before you go, Victor, you're the one who coined the term "the impossible state" to describe North Korea. Why do you call it the impossible state? The impossible state to me refers to a country, a unique country, which is North Korea, in the sense that by today's metrics of a nation state, this country should have fallen apart a long time ago. Uh, and for 30 to 40 years, people, including myself, had been predicting that it would not be able to last. Uh, and yet, in spite of all the odds against it, it still is there. So in that sense, it truly is an impossible state, despite all of the factors that weigh against their ability to, uh, to sustain themselves. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is the impossible state.